And we feel that. We feel that in the seat of our emotions. We feel that. So when people come and say, oh, so now you can go lie, cheat, and steal. It's like, no, you don't get it. I love him. Welcome to Former Adventist Podcast. Grab a cup of coffee and join Colleen Tinker and Nikki Stevenson as they discuss their life after Adventism. Welcome to Former Adventist Podcast. I'm Colleen Tinker. And I'm Nikki Stevenson. Well, last week, Nikki, we talked about the last part of Galatians 3, where Paul explains that the law was like a hired slave who took care of a minor child of a wealthy person. The law held people in custody. People under the law were under the care of an impersonal guardian who held us under the threat of punishment and kept reminding us that we weren't measuring up. Today, we're going to talk about God's timing to release people from the custody of the law. Not only does He release us from the law, but He adopts all of us who believe in His Son as His own sons and heirs. The good news is so much more than anything I understood as an Adventist. I had thought that the good news was that Jesus would give me the ability to keep the law so I could please God. But no, He fulfilled the law and took its curse so that He could release me from it. I'm not under its curse when I'm in Christ, but I'm an adopted heir. Legally, I'm God's own daughter in Christ. But first, we want to remind you that we do love your emails. Write to us at formeradventist at gmail.com and go to proclamationmagazine.com to sign up for our weekly Proclamation Email Magazine. We not only have new articles every Friday, but we have links to our online magazines and articles, to our YouTube channel, and to this podcast. You can also donate to Life Assurance Ministries at this website using the Donate tab at the site if you want to help us continue to get the good news of the true gospel out to our Adventist loved ones. And please leave us a review wherever you listen to podcasts. But now, Nikki, I have a question for you. Okay. As an Adventist, What did you think it meant that God sent Jesus to redeem those under the law so that we could become adopted as his sons and heirs? That's a good question. You know, when I was in my freshman year of high school, I was at boarding academy, and we would have worship regularly. And one of the songs that I remember singing a lot was Redeemed, How I Love to Proclaim It, Redeemed by the Blood of the Lamb. And in my 15-year-old mind, I remember thinking that redeemed meant I'm a good person now. Oh, that's interesting. I know that's not what the word means, and I don't remember ever actually being taught that, but that was yeah. that was the fruit of whatever else I thought, that being redeemed by Jesus means now I can be good. Now my life is out of the slums mm-hmm. <laughs> and into the realm of, you know, morality. Oh, that's a good word. Morality. Yeah. I think that when I was young, that was what I thought it meant to be redeemed by the Lamb, to be made good, to be put right on the right path, the straight Mm -hmm. and the narrow, and making good choices. Redeemed from the law, I don't think I ever actually heard or thought about those words. Redeemed from the law. I don't think that was something we talked about. I think if somebody had told me you're redeemed from the law, I would have just said, well, yeah, I don't have to sacrifice animals now every time Mm -hmm. I sin. Right, right. I think that's where it would have stopped. What about you? I'm sitting here trying to remember what I thought it meant to be redeemed. You're bringing up that song just brings up all my visceral reactions to it. I hated that song. (laughs) Did you? (laughs) Yeah, we used to sing it at JMV on, I think it was Friday mornings in grade school. We had the Singing Youth hymn book, and we would sing sometimes... Redeemed how I love to proclaim it. And it always seemed like (laughs) such a boring song. I didn't like the melody. It just seemed boring and repetitious. And frankly, the message escaped me. I have to ask, what was JMV? Oh, I'm so sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Junior Missionary Volunteers. It was related to the whole thing that spawned Pathfinders. And in Adventist school, we had the Junior Missionary Volunteer Meeting on Friday mornings instead of worship. So we would sing songs and we would have people who would read the scripture meet reading and we would have people who would pray. And I really don't remember very much else about it. Do you remember the line 
His Child and Forever I Am. Yes, I do. And I remember hating the song. The words meant nothing to me. It was just Christianese. I'd hear those words, but it didn't have a meaning for me. Yeah, I cannot figure how we would have fit that line into our Adventist worldview. Well, I didn't, clearly. (laughs) Instead of the real meaning of redeemed how I love to proclaim it, it was more like, and I am an Adventist girl, you know. (laughs) I have the Sabbath. (laughs) I mean, that's always what it all came down to for me. I don't remember ever feeling hope or understanding about it. And as far as this passage in Galatians, certainly not until I was an adult did I really read it. But even then, I didn't understand what it meant that He redeemed those under the law so that they might become adopted as His sons and heirs. And that was just metaphor Mm -hmm. for doing the right thing, keeping the Sabbath. And somehow being redeeming those under the law meant somehow He's going to fill in and make up the difference for me so that when I break the law, His goodness fills up and makes up the difference, and God will kind of overlook the fact that I'm not doing a good job, because somehow I've trusted Jesus, Mm -hmm. so He's going to make it up for me. I didn't understand at all what it meant. We had so many dueling ideas in our head. You just pick the one that makes the most sense for whatever conversation you happen to be having about God. On the one hand, he makes it up for us. On the other hand, nothing unconfessed is forgiven. It's all very confusing. This is making me realize that Adventism, Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses, Christian science all came into existence at approximately the same time in the 19th century. These quasi-Christian cults, which pretend to be Christian, but which really aren't, are amazingly similar under the hood, but Adventism is the hardest to figure out because it uses Christian words. So, we'd sing, redeemed how I love to proclaim it, his child and forever I am. And we'd sing at the same time, the other song from Singing Youth, the junior missionary volunteer song, you know, there's a battle to be won, you know, and, you know, it's like, it was all a mishmash of Adventist American, win the battle, fight for God, and redeemed, and I'm his child, and keep the Sabbath, and blessed Sabbath day, and nothing made sense. But that's internal talk. Mm -hmm. And the external talk all sounds pretty biblical. So, am I surprised that Walter Martin was so deceived? Am I surprised that Christians don't understand Adventism? No. Because on the surface, we say the right things as Adventists. Mm -hmm. It's under the hood that nothing makes sense. And isn't it amazing when we finally understand the gospel and we catch ourselves singing those old songs Mm -hmm. and going, oh, (laughs) that's what that means. Yes, it's so true. So today we're going to look at the first seven verses in chapter four of Galatians, and we're getting into some really amazing stuff that I never understood in the past. So, would you read those seven verses for us, please, Nikki? Sure. Now I say, as long as the heir is a child, he does not differ at all from a slave, although he is owner of everything, but he's under guardians and managers until the date set by the father. So also we, while we were children, were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. This makes me emotional. (laughs) Wow. So... Going back up to verse 1, and let's just address this verse by verse because there's so much in each of these verses. It was amazing (laughs) to me when we were studying for Mm -hmm. it how much each verse just, it just opened up vistas I never used to think about. (laughs) That first verse, as long as the heir is a child, he does not differ at all from a slave, although he is owner of everything. Now, Paul is continuing his conversation from last week where he was saying that the law is like a tutor or a pedagogue, a hired slave that's had a job, which was described as take care of the heir before he's an adult. Make sure he's good. Make sure he obeys the house rules. Make sure he's dressed for breakfast. You know, <laughs> make sure he gets to school. 
So Paul is continuing that metaphor, but he's shifting it a little bit. In chapter 3, he talked a lot about the fact that the law functioned as a hired slave that kept the minor child in line. This chapter, he's talking a little bit more about the actual nature of the child who's being managed by the slave. So when you read verse 1, Nikki, what comes out to you in this verse that he just said? Well, it's interesting that that he's very clear about the fact that he does not differ at all from a slave. That's fascinating, isn't it? So it's not even as if this child is able to order their pedagogues around. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> they are in submission yeah. to a slave. And this slave, this pedagogue, is a provision from the parents yes. for isn't the child. Interesting. Mm-hmm. And the law was a provision for humanity. Yes. The provision of the law for humanity is described in the previous chapters that we've looked at. How? What kind of provision did the law make? Well, it held us all captive. We were held in bondage under the law, and it revealed our nature and the fact that our sin is rebellion against God. And, you know, this has kind of hit home for me as I've thought back on Adventism. And as, as I've come out of Adventism myself and become part of a Christian community and then reaching back into Adventism to help people understand the gospel, it's become more and more clear to me, Nikki, that one of the big things I think most Adventists miss is their need to repent. Because we weren't taught we were depraved. And that was the great gift of the law, according to the first half of Galatians. The law was given to show us that we are transgressing righteousness. It's given to make us despair of being able to be good, to make us realize we can't be good. That's what the law's purpose was. And I didn't understand that as an Adventist because, I, number one, I wasn't taught I was depraved. So, somehow the law was something that was within my ability to do or God wouldn't have given it, right? Wasn't that part of the whole great controversy idea? Mm-hmm. So, here he's saying the heir, as a child, is no different from a slave, And we're under the tutelage of the law, as long as the law is there before the law is fulfilled. It's interesting, too, that he makes the point that this child still is owner of everything. Yes, but it is not in his actual power to manage everything yet. Mm -hmm. And in a spiritual sense, the way I understand this now is, I had to understand that I needed to repent, that I needed a Savior, and I had to trust only the Savior. And that was the point of the law, to reveal to me my own need. It wasn't to make me good. It was to reveal my own need. And I say this as a we, because I was an Adventist who was living under the law. I mean, we know from Scripture that the law was given to Israel. The Gentiles were not given the law. And salvation does not come through the law. But I say this because we're former Adventists, and we are talking primarily to people who grew up believing the law informed them how to be good. If anybody, even a Gentile, places themselves under the law, well, then they've placed themselves under a curse. Mm -hmm. If you're going to try to keep one little piece of the law, like Sabbath, then you're under the curse and the sentence of the entire law. But that entire law was really a slave master to keep us in custody from destroying ourselves, from destroying one another, until faith came. Here we have him saying that that minor child under the law is no different from a slave, even though he's owner of everything. But then, verse 2, as this person who's no different from a slave, he's under the guardianship and managers until the date set by the father. Talk to me about that. I always love the untils. They're my favorite. (laughs) Because in Adventism, we had our own timeline. (laughs) We we had our own series of things that were supposed to happen and that allegedly happened. 1844 to who knows when. (laughs) If all you did as an Adventist was study the untils of Scripture, it would be enough to take you out. That's Adventism. (laughs) So the fact is that these children, just going with his picture here, these children, though they're owners of everything... They're under the guardianship of these managers until the date set by the father. That means that while they were under these managers, the father already had a plan that a time would come when they would no longer be under these managers and all that is theirs would become fully theirs to manage. (laughs) Isn't that amazing? And so we have this sovereignty that 
you know, of course we weren't allowed to believe in as Adventists. Even though sometimes the word was thrown around. Yeah, but usually redefined, I think. Yes, it was definitely redefined as God is sovereign so he can set aside his sovereignty to, you know, honor our free will. Exactly. So, until means this is time sensitive and they will be managed until something stops it, until something occurs that stops it. That's a really good point. The law is the manager of the minor child until the date set by the father, which really tells me that Jesus's coming, his first coming, wasn't just something random that happened because they finally demonstrated that they were ready. You know, it's interesting that when Jesus came, the world was ready. The Greek empire had normalized and and universalized the, the Greek language so that it was like the trade language. People everywhere spoke Greek. It was the language of scholarship. Things were written in Greek. The whole world knew Greek. And then came the Romans who built the Roman roads and connected the Roman Empire in ways that had never been connected. The world had never been connected before. So that when Jesus finally came and brought the gospel, the world was prepared for both a written gospel and for the apostles to actually take the gospel to the Gentile world. They weren't just stuck in Judea. The actual infrastructure was in place God did that. Mm-hmm. He used the pagans to do that. I even heard um, S. Lewis Johnson in a sermon on this passage saying that even the Gentiles at the time Jesus came had a messianic awareness about them. He said even Plato wrote about some sort of messianic figure. There was an expectation in the world, a sense of something would happen, someone would come, something was going to come that would help humanity. And of course, the Gentiles didn't all know what that meant. The Jews certainly should have known because they had the prophecies. But that's interesting. It it almost sheds additional light on the three wise men who came to Jesus. <laughs> yeah, I thought yeah. so too. They knew from somewhere that that star would arise and that it would mean something. They had the prophecies too. It's interesting to me that this is a set time by the Father. He sent Jesus in the fullness of time. So, we go on then to verse 3 where Paul develops his argument, and he says, while we were children, and you know, he was the Jew of Jews. But interestingly, one thing about Paul that I didn't really understand until we went through the book of Acts in FAF a few years ago, Paul was a Hellenistic Jew. He wasn't a Jerusalem Jew. Yes, to be sure, he'd studied with Gamaliel, who was the best-known rabbi of the time, no doubt. But he grew up in Troas, which was a Roman city. It was in a Roman colony. So, he grew up speaking Greek, being surrounded by Greek pagans, Greek-speaking pagans, even though he was in a Jewish family and a Jewish, no doubt a Jewish community there. But he was a Hellenistic Jew. So, think of God choosing Paul, who knew Judaism inside and out, but who also understood Greek culture. It's almost like he's sovereign. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that a funny thought? (laughs) So, here's this Hellenistic Jew saying, when we were children, like he had been under the law, when he was out killing the church because he thought he was obeying the law, we were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. Now, what are the elemental things of the world? It's interesting how this is interpreted a little differently from different people. And actually, I think both interpretations work. Mm -hmm. The elemental principles could be the fundamental building blocks of something, like the alphabet. Right. Or the numbers. Yes. (laughs) Um, You know, any, any kind of basic fundamental instruction. And so you can see that at play when you're looking at the Mosaic law, instructing humanity, letting us know our nature. This is a building block leading us to Christ. It's the the tutor that's taking us where we need to go. It's basic. (laughs) But then there was also this idea of the heavenly bodies and the the spirits that are determining people's fate, which sounds more pagan. Mm -hmm. It sounds kind of like astrology to me. And so there's also this kind of spiritual sense. And if you think about the Gentiles who were not Jewish, they did not have God in the world. Paul tells us in Ephesians that they were cut off from him. They lived in a pagan culture with pagan religions. And 
probably did buy into this astrology and this kind of these spirits or these gods that are determining your fate. Whether you were Jew or Gentile, you were in bondage to something. Yes. And in fact, Paul makes the case in Ephesians 2, 1 to 3, that Jew and Gentile were dead in trespasses and sins, following the course of the world, and get this, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. So, Paul is saying there is a spiritual force Mm -hmm. that is at work in everybody, Jew, Gentile, somebody who was born in a Christian family on this side of the cross, somebody who was born in an Orthodox Jewish family on that side of the cross, whatever. There is a spirit that's at work in the non-born again person, in the spiritually dead person. It's our legacy from Adam. He is talking about real things here, building blocks like the pieces of the rules that describe morality like the law would do, or spirits in the spirit world. And he is making such an interesting comparison as we read on here. So, he's saying, while we were children held in bondage under the elemental things of the world, and he's referring by those elemental things of the world in the context to what? To the Mosaic law. Isn't that fascinating? Yeah. Who would ever have called the law of Moses or the law of God, as Adventists would be quick to correct us, oh, written by the finger of God, who would have ever called that part of the elemental things of the world? But that's what he's saying. Does that mean that God gave Israel something that was pagan? No, God gave Israel a tutor to lead them to Christ. Exactly. So, how can he say that now? Going back, turning away from what God has given you, shunning the sun is pagan. Yes. No matter what you're abandoning him for. It's chilling to think of that because, you know, Christians everywhere drag the law along as their rule of faith and practice. But Paul is really saying here, that's a pagan thing to do. It's now on this side of the cross with Jesus having fulfilled the law and all that means, and we'll talk about some of it as we go through this passage, the Holy Spirit indwelling us, the Holy Spirit making us know we're sons of God, to go back to the law which was given as a tutor to lead people to the Messiah who is coming, going back is to reject Jesus. Mm -hmm. It's worth reminding people who are listening, especially if you're new, we're speaking from a former Adventist context. Yes. We absolutely believe that all of Scripture is useful for, for faith and for practice, but we also believe and know by looking at our Apostle Paul that there's a lawful way to use the law. And so we're speaking against the idea of using the law for righteousness or to earn favor, the law, any law, To earn favor with God. That's a really good point. Thank you for saying that, Nikki, because I believe that. Yes. The law still serves a purpose. It's part of the eternal word of God. And it's still part of the way we know Jesus is who he said he was. The law's existence and its foreshadowing of his righteousness is partly how we know he's him. Yeah. As an Adventist, I thought of keeping the law as the way I proved that I loved God. But there's nowhere in Scripture that tells us on this side of the cross that the law is the proof that we love God. Mm -mm. The New Testament teaches us instead that our righteousness, our security, and our ability to please God comes through the indwelling Spirit instead of from the external law. And the law is righteous, holy, and good, as Paul says in Romans 7, but it has to be used lawfully. Mm -hmm. And it's to convict people of their need for a Savior and of their own depravity not to show us how to please God and keep our salvation intact. So, then we look forward to verse 4, and this is one of my favorite verses. I just love when I think through the meanings of these words. But when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, And then in verse 5, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. First, let's just talk about that fullness of time and what we learn about Jesus when 
Paul says, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. You want to talk about that, Nikki? Yeah, there's so much doctrine in these two verses. It's incredible. So much of what we know about God, we learn about Him just scattered all over Scripture. I really thought as an Adventist that you just looked at the 10 and that that was the transcript. That told me everything I would need to know about God. This verse tells us so much about God. This is a pattern. The fullness of time is a pattern in Scripture. We read about the fullness of time all over the place. God is sovereignly at work in human history to bring about His plan. He is providentially involved in all things. And so when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, which claims deity for Christ. Yes, He is God. He is God's son, born of a woman. There's his humanity. So now we have the hypostatic union. Yes. Born under the law. There's his nationality. Now we're thinking about the promises he made to Abraham. Yes. As you go on, there's more, of course, so that he might redeem. And there's more to say about that when we when we look at that verse. You know, this text now always makes me think about Paul's um, sermon on Mars Hill in Acts 17 when he was in Athens. As an Adventist, I didn't even notice this passage, and now it's become something that I cling to because it tells me something so important about God. It's related to the fullness of time, and Paul is saying to these pagans in Athens, The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now He commands all people everywhere to repent because He has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom He has appointed, and of this day He has given assurance to all by raising Him from the dead. (laughs) Nikki, we were taught what about the second coming and our job? Oh, well, we had to bring it in. And in fact, I believe the Adventist organization was scolded by their president back when they had their big anniversary not too long ago because we were still here. Right. (laughs) You haven't achieved that righteousness of God so that he will bring in his kingdom and come back. Mm -hmm. No, he has a day fixed. And Paul said that way back in the first century in the city of Athens to a bunch of pagan people who were hearing him preach about Jesus without even knowing the law, by the way. And the day is fixed. So, in the fullness of time, in that same kind of way, when Jesus came, the Son of God, born of a woman, it was right on schedule. God had prepared the world, as I mentioned earlier. It was ready for the gospel to go. And the time was God's. It wasn't people who decided or who were finally good enough to warrant the Savior. You know, I used to wonder if he was just waiting for someone as good as Mary. Oh, that's interesting. So that he could bring his son into the world. But when I was younger, I used to think about that a lot. That's an interesting thought. Of course you'd have that thought. I thought she must have been an amazing kid. (laughs) Well, she probably was. But I don't think he was waiting for her. I think he prepared her. (laughs) And gave her the strength for what he asked her to do. (laughs) So in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, And then verse five, so that. What's the so that? That's a plan. (laughs) I love it. His plan was to redeem us. And that redemption was a purchase. He didn't just set us free and say, now go, do your thing. No. He purchased a people for his own possession. He redeemed us. A life for a lot of lives. Yeah. Wow, that's really amazing. And you know, a purchase, a redemption, like you said, requires a price. And it's interesting that as an Adventist, I thought of it as his redeeming us was basically somehow showing us how the law could be kept and making it possible for us to keep the law. No, a redemption is not an imputation of righteousness or law keeping, and it is not an imparting of righteousness so that we can keep the law. It's something completely different. He bought us. Mm -hmm. He bought us out of sin. 
Who did he make the payment to? Now, this is actually kind of a big deal because a lot of people will say some pretty sketchy things about who (laughs) the payment of the blood was actually made to. It was to God. It was to God. And we see that in Romans 3. Jesus shed his blood, God the Son and the Son of Man, hypostatic union, which we can't explain, but he shed real human blood, sinless, and paid the price to God which God, the Trinity, had established from the foundation of the world. In a sense, he paid his own price. Mm -hmm. But that blood he shed was enough to cover all humans. And anyone who believes is covered by the price he paid with his blood. It was a price. It was not an empowerment per se. Now, to be sure, when we trust him, he does empower us and he explains how. But the blood payment was not an imputation of righteousness. The imputation of righteousness to us comes when we trust Him, when we believe in Him. His blood was a payment to God. And Adventists don't like that idea. No, cosmic child abuse. Isn't that what they claim? The other thing that was kind of new to me as I was looking at this, that so that, I knew this before, so that is connected to what was said previously. But the fact that you have God, born of a woman, The fact that you have the hypostatic union, that is the so that. He had to be made like us. He couldn't be our kinsman redeemer if he wasn't also like us. That's true. I never understood as an Adventist, why did Jesus have to come and become a human and be killed? That seems violent. And the very easy answer coming out of Southern California was, well, that was just to show us how bad we are and how much he loves us. Right. It, it wasn't judicial. It wasn't right. significant that way. Of course, God could build a rock too big for him to lift. Yes. <laughs> but it's very clear in Scripture that he had to be made like his brethren in all things. That's Hebrews 2.17. In Hebrews 2.14.15, he says, Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. He is our Redeemer. We were redeemed with with something not perishable like gold and silver, but God Himself, the (laughs) God-man. And it's because of that that we can receive adoption as sons and daughters. That's really amazing, Nikki. I remember when I realized that too, from that same passage you just read. We'd been out of Adventism about mm, two, two and a half years-ish, And we were going through Hebrews in FAF. I was working through Hebrews 2, and I read that. And for the first time, I understood what it was saying. I could never figure out why he had to have a human body to take responsibility for us, because after all, he was the creator. You know, he's responsible for whatever he made, and if what he makes malfunctions, well, that's his problem. (laughs) And we clearly malfunctioned. But I didn't understand that he had to have a body to shed human blood for human sin. An angel couldn't redeem us. A spirit, God who is spirit, couldn't shed blood for us because part of his eternal rule, which I don't understand, it's his rule, was that there had to be blood to pay for sin. You know, if you want to question God, that's a different thing. But the Bible clearly says that is how it works. And we're not told why it works that way, but we're told that it works that way. And when you look at what Jesus did and who he was and how he's redeemed us through becoming like us, it's so big, I don't know how to even talk about it. You know, I I can't prove it, but it's kind of my own personal pondering about this. I think that it's connected somehow to God's character and the fact that he is perfectly just and perfectly holy and everything about him is perfect. And the way humans understand mercy and grace and forgiveness, it requires some refusal to deal with reality. Yeah. But I think that perfect, holy, righteous justice, it demands truth and reality in all of it. And the reality is we are human sinners who need to pay for our sin. And Jesus legally did that by becoming a human It wouldn't have been legal to do that if he had just declared us forgiven. Yeah, that would have been human politics. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) 
<laughs> exactly. <laughs> no, he had to be like us. He came to redeem those under the law that we might receive the adoption as sons. Okay, the adoption as sons is being contrasted with the condition of being like slaves under the law prior to being mature. What we're seeing here is an argument that Paul is developing in which he makes the case that Jesus, the hypostatic union of God the Son and the Son of Man coming to offer himself as the perfect sacrifice, that is like the fulcrum on which all of history rests. So prior to his coming, God's people were held in custody under the law, being convicted of their sin, being provided a way to be reminded all the time of how much blood was necessary to cover their sin, and to be reminded that God himself was providing a way to cover their sin. But then Jesus comes and the entire focus shifts to his one perfect sacrifice. And that one perfect sacrifice becomes the fulcrum on which the slaves under the law go to being sons and heirs. So, Nikki, talk to us about adoption. When Paul says that he redeemed those under the law that we might receive the adoption as sons, he's describing this fulcrum between slaves in the past and becoming sons on this side of the cross. What does it mean to be adopted? That's a transfer of family. <laughs> yes, And it's in the language that we might receive the adoption as sons. There's a condition in the Greek. It's conditional. It's based on something. So this isn't universalism. Jesus didn't just come and die and now everyone's a child of God. This is for those who believe. And Paul fleshes this out. And he explained in Galatians that they did receive the Spirit through faith. The people he's writing to were already sons of God. Very important. So it is conditioned upon belief. And once that happens, we get more information. I always want to pull from other books. Yes. (laughs) Once that happens, once we hear the word of truth, the gospel of our salvation and believe, then we're sealed with the Holy Spirit. Then we're guaranteed. Then we're born again. And, And then God raises us up with Christ. Yes. And we're adopted as his children. His redemption of us on the cross was not, as we said, imputing his law keeping to us or imparting the ability to keep the law, but we actually receive his imputed righteousness because we've believed in him. Just as Jesus was God, the son and the son of man, he gives us new birth with his own life, which is what enables us to be God's sons and heirs. I like it says in John 1 12, that to all who believed God gave the right to become the sons of God born of God, not of a man or of a husband's will, but of God. So somehow we receive actual life in our dead spirits, our spirits which were dead in sin. But then he goes one step farther and he actually says that we're adopted. I've always thought it was so interesting that the Bible tells us two things about when we believe in Jesus. The first is that we are born again and given eternal life. We pass from death to life, John 5, 24. It also tells us that we're adopted as sons. Now, you think about what we know about humanity. We have born children and we have adopted children. And we're told that in the eyes of God, we actually get both. Now, what is significant about being adopted and born again? What's different? That's security. It sure is. Because people have children and they're legally theirs because they're born to them. But when a person adopts a child, that's a change of identity. That's a legal declaration of a family change. So that we have not only intrinsically the life of God put into us and sealed with His Spirit in us, but legally God adopts us and transfers us from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of His beloved Son. It's permanent. And it makes us an heir. So you have this backdrop where you have the Judaizers coming in and saying, wait a minute, nope, you're not in yet. You need to get circumcised, keep the Sabbath. You need to do these things in order to be a part of God's people. And against that backdrop, he's saying, who has bewitched you? Before your eyes, Christ was crucified. And he goes on and he explains that this crucifixion, this death of the God-man, 
purchased and redeemed them and caused them to be adopted and made them heirs. It's done. There's no no room for the Judaizer's message. And fully mature sons yes. and heirs. Mm-hmm. Because prior to the cross, sons were children kept in bondage under the law. On this side of the cross, believers are made sons and heirs. I love thinking back. Um, it's been 14 years now, and it happened on April 23 when I adopted Roy and Nathaniel. And they had been my stepchildren for years. You know, they were very, very young when I became their stepmother. And when they were 21 and 25, they wanted me to adopt them. And it was an amazing moment. And the four of us with some friends, some close friends, sat in the judge's chambers, and he read the terms of the adoption. And I had never heard a legal adoption ceremony, if you want to call it that. And I had to agree that I would take them as my sons and heirs, as if they were my own. And then, because they were adults, he looked at them, each of them, and asked them, are you willing to give up your past and to take Colleen as your mother and receive her inheritance as your own and forsake all that was yours before? And they said, yes. Now, that was an amazing thing. But then the judge looked at me and he says, now, because of this, because of this agreement, you can never undo this agreement. This is a legal agreement that you've all decided to take each other as your own, and you can't undo this legal action. And I realized that parents can disown natural-born children legally if they decide to. But an adoption is a more permanent, secure thing that I can't go back to court and say, I'm done now. They are mine. The law says they are mine. And all I have is theirs. And that's permanent. (laughs) And that's the image that Paul uses when he says you are now adopted as sons and heirs. Think about what that means. We are heirs of God. That's incredible. That means everything that's his is ours mm-hmm. in Christ. I always think about the passage in Ephesians that talks about his inheritance in the saints. And I'm a co-heir. And that means that all of you who believe in Christ, I've inherited you. I love that, And you've Nikki. inherited me. Mm-hmm. Well, he goes on in verse 6 and says, Because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba. Father. Now, what does this tell you happens when we are adopted and born again? We're indwelt by the Spirit, and the Spirit Himself cries out, Abba, Father. It it makes me think of all of those moments when we're together as a church in corporate worship, and we're all crying out, Abba, Father, as we worship and praise Him together, and that is His Spirit in us. Yes, And it's telling us the truth. It's not a metaphor. It's not a think of it as if. No, this is actual reality. And it makes me think of Romans 8, 14, and 15, where Paul says, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. And it's just interesting to me that Paul is actually making a contrast here between the spirit of slavery, which is our natural condition as slaves under the law prior to being mature and born again, um, being under the spirit of the prince of the power of the air. That slavery is different from receiving the spirit of adoption. We have a new caretaker, a new spirit. We're no longer dead in sin under the spirit of the power of the air, the elemental things he talked about. But we have a new caretaker, the spirit of God, who teaches us to call the Father, our Father. (laughs) And like you said, there's nothing like standing in corporate worship and praising Him together. And the words that He chose, He chose Abba, Father. Abba is Aramaic and Father is Greek. I I don't know how to pronounce it. I think it's Patre. (laughs) And so he's pulling from these languages that bring together both Jew and Gentile. So cool. And place them in a family relationship with the Father. Now, when you have a Father like ours, 
when you have a father like God, you obey out of love. Yeah. You respond to him as his child. This word that the spirit is in our very hearts, is in our heart crying, Abba, Father. Paul's not talking about our physical, biological heart. It's in the very seat of our emotion and person and being that the Spirit cries out, Abba, Father. And we sense that. We know that. I have to share, there was a time after I was saved that I went through a dark period. I was depressed. I was learning at the same time. I was learning a lot of scripture And I was learning about the sovereignty of God and that He chooses us. And yet I was suffering through some some things I had to work through. Mm -hmm. And I thought, this can't be right. I'm supposed to have joy. You know, maybe I'm not saved. (laughs) Maybe I'm not born again. And then I... I hate to admit it, but I turned this against God and I asked Him, why did you do this? You just gave Mm -hmm. me the truth so that you could have my children. You wanted me to give them the gospel. You didn't want me. You didn't choose me. Wow. And I grieved because I thought God didn't want me. And then I was reading the scriptures and it occurred to me (laughs) (laughs) that I wanted my father. Yeah. I cried out for him and I was angry and I needed to be dealt with and Mm -hmm. I needed scripture to correct me and my poor thinking. But the fact of the matter is I wanted to belong to God because I did belong to God (laughs) because he placed his spirit in me. And I was crying out, Father, I just had some real poor thinking I needed (laughs) to deal with. That is such an amazing story, Nikki. And it reminds me of what Jesus said in John 10, where he says his sheep hear his voice and that those who are His, nothing can take them out of the Father's hand, and nothing can take them out of His hand. Not even our own depression, our own poor thinking, our own conviction that we're not saved. (laughs) If we are His, we are His, and He holds us and pulls us through those dark times. And Scripture tells us no one seeks after God. No one. And Jesus said, no one comes to me unless the Father draws Him. So the desire to belong to the God of the Bible is kind of a good indication that he's calling you to himself. Well, one of the things that I um, heard in studying for this, again, it was in that sermon by S. Lewis Johnson. And if any of you want to hear him exposit scripture, you can find him. Um, There is an SLJ app (laughs) available, (laughs) and he has some great expository preaching. But he mentioned that the word Abba was an Aramaic word that was used by little children when they were learning to talk. It was kind of their word for daddy. And he said it was like the first ability to speak, this was like the word that would come out of their mouth, and it was used as a as a tender family word for daddy. And it just made me think, it, just, it was such a sweet memory when our oldest granddaughter was just learning to talk. And we had always decided that we would not tell our grandchildren what to call us. We would we would go by whatever they called us, mm-hmm. because that's just kind of fun. And I remember when Roy and Richard were talking, and I remember Roy holding Annalise, and he was saying, this is Grandpa. And she was trying to say it. And you know what mm-hmm. came out of her mouth? Hmm. Abba. <laughs> so all three of Roy's children call him Abbott to this day. Aww. It's just so sweet. And it makes me think of this every time I hear them call him Abba. And I realize that this is such a tender thing that the Spirit teaches us to say. The first babblings of a tiny child before they can speak the language, it's the word of love for the father figure. And we feel that. We feel that. In the seat of our emotions, we feel that. So when people come and say, oh, so now you can go lie, cheat, and steal, it's like, no, you don't get it. Exactly. I love him. And he's in me. He will check me if I give into the flesh for a moment and want to do something terrible. He checks me. He loves me. And I love him. This is what is meant by if you love me you'll keep my commandments. It's not keep the 10 commandments to prove that you love me. And it's nothing about the Sabbath. It's if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And it's not nomos, but that's another podcast. (laughs) (laughs) That's very true. (laughs) So he ends this section with this. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. What an amazing, complete 180 from where we started. 
we were slaves under the law. But when Jesus came, there was that fulcrum in history where the God-man shed his blood on the cross for our sin. And now on this side of the cross of that permanent, sufficient, eternal sacrifice of God the Son and the Son of Man, we who believe are sons and heirs. Permanently. Permanently. The word they're used for no longer is the strongest Greek negative. It means an extension of time up to a point, but not beyond. Wow. So this is saying, therefore, you are no longer and never will be again a slave, but a son. That's amazing. So if you're an Adventist or have an Adventist background and you feel like, well, yeah, but what if you decide to jump out of his hand? What if you decide you don't want to be saved anymore? I have one thing to say. If a person decides that, they have never been the son. And John says that in his first epistle in the second chapter, that those who went out from us were never of us. The fact that they go out from us means they were never one of us. When we trust Jesus and are born again and sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who teaches us to call God our Father, and we are adopted as His sons and heirs, that is permanent. He convicts us if we sin. He restores us, but He never chases us out of the family. So if you have not experienced that sense of knowing that God is your Father, your Abba, if you have not trusted Jesus and His eternal sacrifice, His sufficient blood shed for your sin, if this is all something that you think about but aren't sure, think again and remember what Paul has told us here in this first part of Galatians 4. Jesus has fulfilled the law. He has died. He has fulfilled every shadow. And on this side of the cross, we can't go back to those elemental principles without forsaking Jesus in the process. Trust Him. Know that He died for you, that He rose from death to break the curse that you were under. And when you trust Him and believe in Him, He will give you that new life. He will adopt you as His heir, and you will be forever secure with Him. If you have questions or comments for us, write to us at formeradventist at gmail.com. Visit proclamationmagazine.com to sign up for weekly emails containing new online articles and other ministry news delivered to your inbox each Friday. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast and please share it with a friend and leave a review wherever you listen. Join us next week as we continue our study in Galatians 4 with a look at verses 8 to 11. And we'll see you then.